So I was gone uh, this weekend for the last couple of days, and as I was getting back into cell phone range, you know, someone was text messaging me, and he said, you know, are we going to talk about what's happening in Israel right now? And I said, of course, anytime there is suffering in the world, anytime it impacts people in a massive way, we should absolutely pray. It doesn't matter if those people are people who have the same religion, different religion, no religion, our neighbors, or across the world. And so I just wanted to take a, a minute to acknowledge, hopefully, the start of, of peace talks, but it may be the start also of a long conflict. And as we've watched the last couple days, you know, we've seen that not only are military personnel killed, but innocents, civilians, mothers, children's, fathers, and people. And I think that breaks God's heart. And it's a microcosm of the problem in our world that the conflict is not with one another, but with the spiritual powers uh, in the world. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to not only acknowledge what is happening, but to pray for both sides, both people, and all the people who will be impacted by this conflict, that God would bring a swift resolution, that peace will abound, and the suffering would be minimized. And so I would ask that you join me in prayer. Father, we know that uh, war is not a part of your plan. Lord, we know that many people will lose their lives at the conflicts that happen in this world. And Lord, we know even that the places and the steps and the land that Jesus walked is that there's not peace there either. Lord, we just ask that we continue to pray for people, that everyone is made in the image of God, whether we agree with them or not. Lord, we just ask that you bring peace to a, a part of the world that has seen generational strife and conflict, that cooler heads prevailed and that your spirit is upon that place and that you give comfort to those who suffer and wise decisions for those who are seeking revenge or are seeking an end to the hurting and to people who have their fingers on buttons and triggers, that you give them pause to see one another as human beings, not as enemies, people made in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kyle, and I'm the lead pastor here. And today we are continuing on in a series called He Hears Us. It's a series on prayer. Uh, but I wanted to go back. This last Wednesday, uh, we had a golf tournament with multiple churches, and uh, LifePoint participated in that. We had about 24 people participate in that. And that because we have a lot of leaders here, and because we have a lot of humble people, we decided to lead the way by taking third place. It was great. And we really appreciated that. Jesus said... The last will be first, and the first will be last. And so we took him seriously on that, because third place is the last place counted. Um, we did win the Long Drive Champion. Shout out to Matt. And so that was pretty cool. Actually, two people uh, from our church won the Long Drive Champion show. So we're kind of humble, but not that humble, you know, at the same time. So I just wanted to acknowledge our humility in front of everybody. Uh, but it was fun. If you haven't done uh, something fun like that, if you haven't joined a group, if you haven't gone to an event, if you haven't gone to a men's or women's event, it's a great way to meet and talk with people. Um, so I highly encourage you to do that. And uh, I hope you have a good time also as well. So this series is called He Hears Us. And the, the reason we're talking about this series is that we've been going through this, this year-long series in the Bible. And so we took on the monumental, possibly foolish task of going through the Bible in an entire year. And there are massive amounts of the Bible to cover. And sometimes we'll cover 50 chapters in one session. Uh, and we decided to take a pause from going through a long, long periods of, uh, of time in one book. Um, and we, we decided to spend one large chunk in the book of Psalms to talk about a specific topic on prayer. And so we're kind of going through the Bible thematically, and each of these psalms 
This is kind of our big fall series, and if you're in a group, we hope that you've enjoyed the videos. We hope it's spurred discussion for you. If you're not in a group, highly encourage you to do that, not just to watch the videos, but to do life together with other people, and we hope you'll do that. But we wanted to really center on prayer this fall, that we said the prayers are the currency of humanity, that everyone needs them, everyone does some form of them, atheists, agnostics, Jewish person, if you're a part of the Islamic religion, if you're a Christian, if you're a Buddhist, they're all sorts of prayers, and we wanted to focus on what prayer looks like in scripture for Christians. And so what we do is we're going through the Psalms. We're not teaching people necessarily how to pray, but we are teaching them what to pray for and a little bit how to pray. And what I mean by how is not different postures or where you go, but what maybe you should pray for that you're not. And the Psalms are basically a way to pray to God. And today we're going to be talking about a Psalm and we get the message for all of these titles from a, uh, a portion of the Psalm that we're in today. So you'll recognize that. So this one's called called Listen, My People. Now, if you've ever told someone to listen, it is usually not followed by a very gentle way. Like when I tell my kids, you need to listen to me, they go, oh no, dad's upset. And so this is, this is a time where God is talking to his people and he wants them to listen. It's from Psalm 50, and we've kind of picked seven psalms out of the multiplicity of psalms there are. And so Psalm 50 starts like this. It says, the mighty one, God. Now, this is written by a guy named Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader at this time. And kind of what he's setting up here is he's setting up that God is coming to his people in all of his glory, his terrifying, beautiful, incredible glory. And it says, the mighty one, the God, the Lord, speaks. And he gives himself three titles right off the bat. And that should kind of send a message that, uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. It's like, it's like someone giving all of their titles, like, I'm a doctor and a father and all this sort of stuff. God said, I'm the mighty one, I'm God, and I am the Lord. In case you don't know who is speaking to you, I want you to know who it is. He says, he summons the entire Earth. Now, this is metaphorical language. It doesn't mean that God at one point literally summoned the entire earth and they all went out to the largest amphitheater that they could find and God shows up. It's metaphorical in language, but it is also because the Bible has been read on almost every continent. It is kind of literal to a sense. If you've read Psalm 50, this has actually contributed to that. So from the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting, so like a full day, from Zion, the perfect perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming, Asaph says. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him. So this isn't God coming in like a gentle manner. And sometimes in Christianity, we can kind of downplay the appearance of God. You know, sometimes in, in my own life, and maybe this is the way that you do it as well, sometimes I'm like, man, I wish just God would appear before me. I wish he would just talk with me. I wish he would just stand in front of me, and then I would know not only that he exists, it would confirm my faith, but I could talk with him face to face. And sometimes scripture says, are you sure that you want that? Because God's presence is not necessarily calming. A devouring fire precedes him. A storm rages around him. On high, he summons heaven and earth, the power to summon all of creation. You sure you want to talk with someone like that? He summons heaven and earth in order to judge the wicked. So that's what we think happens when someone gets judged. You know, I've been in a fair amount of courtrooms, and I've seen all sorts of weird things happen. I've been there to defend myself in a parking ticket, which I was innocent of, by the way. Just want to put that out there. Um, I've been there, and I've watched a verdict been read by three people who killed a pastor's son. 
I've watched them freak out and cuss at their attorneys. I've watched people do something I can't even mention in church in a courtroom because it was so disgusting and be tackled by the bailiff. Like, I've seen things in a courtroom, and this is just me, you know, a 40-year-old man doesn't live that long. But when we think of judgment, we think someone is in trouble. But in a courtroom, you probably know this, there's innocent people that are just trying to get out of something. There are people who are clearly guilty that need sentencing, and there's people probably in the middle. When we think about judgment, especially God's judgment, when God hands down a sentence, he's handing it down to people who deserve it. So on high, he summons heaven and earth in order to judge, but he doesn't actually judge the wicked. This is not what Psalm 50 says. He does not judge the wicked. Can we cross that one out there? That's not who he's actually judging. Here is who God judges in this. You can put the next one up there. In order to judge his people. You see, God summons the entirety of the earth to make sure that everyone gets to witness who is actually on trial. His people are on trial. And this is so important. Maybe the most important part of this psalm, and what I'm going to talk, to, talk about today, comes at the beginning of this psalm, because you've got to get the people who are on trial right first. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Today, you're not going to leave super encouraged. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. You know, there, there was a type of preaching for a while, and some of you are old enough to recognize this, called fire and brimstone preaching, where you would come to church and people wouldn't scare the heaven, you know, into you. They'd scare the hell out of you. That's what they were trying to do. And you can say hell in church because it's in the Bible. Don't worry about it. You're good. But it was one of those things that you'd come to church and a preacher would get up there and he would say something and it would make, he or she would say something and it would make you feel terrible. And you would leave church going, why do I go back? Like, I feel horrible. Maybe some of the what they said is right, but I go to church and they make me feel like a sinful, terrible human being that God doesn't even love. And I leave discouraged. And maybe I don't want to go back. And I'm going to be honest, there's going to be a little bit of that today. But part of the reason it's like that is because when Jesus walked this earth, he didn't come as a fluffy bunny, no matter what Easter tells us. He didn't come just with gentle, calm words. What he came is to lead sinners into repentance and to showcase that they have wronged God. And that motif has been around in the Bible for a very long time. And so Psalm 50 is kind of a reminder of that. So I want to say that part of today may wreck you. And I don't even know your story, and I don't need to know your story. But maybe part of what God is saying through Psalm 50 will hit home. But I will encourage you to take some next steps at the end that I hope will kind of pique you into encouragement. So again, my job today is not to leave you feeling amazing. You, know, you may go, I'm never going back there again. The guy's kind of a jerk. And you may be right about that. But I'm going to do my job to try to accurately portray what I think God is saying in this. So he, he judges his people. And then he says this, God says, this is God speaking. He says, gather my faithful ones to me. Now you'll notice language that God is almost being sarcastic, but he's also kind of, he's putting forth what people have said they were supposed to do and the people who they claimed to be as a way of putting in their faith, in in their face, hey, you decided to follow me, not the other way around. So gather my faithful people, the ones to me, those who made a covenant with me and those who made a sacrifice. So God gives three kind of ways of talking about his people. He says, one, my people should be faithful to me, to no other gods, to nothing else. They're supposed to be faithful to me. And faithful 
faith. The Greek word for faith is pistis, which simply means trust. Their desire and their hope should be to place their trust in me more than anything else. And then they also made a covenant with me. Now, a covenant is a big deal, especially with God. A covenant often required blood and death. That's how serious it was, that you make a deal with God. And he, he is the one who actually enacts the deal, but it required blood and death of an animal to kind of symbolize the seriousness of which you entered into a relationship with God. And the reinforcement of that covenant was, was animal sacrifice, which animals, um, when they were killed and then there was blood on the ground, it did not, it symbolized a release of sin, but it never actually took away sin. It was a reenactment of people's covenant with God. So God gives three different ways. You're supposed to be faithful to me. You entered into a covenant with me. And as a reminder of that covenant, you sacrifice animals to remind you of your relationship you had with me. So that's kind of his charge to them so far. He says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. So God is the one who is who's enacting this trial. He is the judge as well. And because he is righteous, he has the ability and the power and the right to call people to what they are guilty of. So God is the judge. And here's what he says. And this is where you got the title for this message. He says, listen, my people, and I will testify against you. So again, if you have this courtroom visual, God isn't there to say, I got this. Don't worry. I know the judge. I'm going to present evidence. We're going to get you off of this. He says, I'm actually going to testify against you. My people, my faithful people, the people who have made a covenant with me, the people who have reinforced their relationship with me through ritual sacrifice. He says, I'm going to testify against you, Israel. I am God your God. And then he kind of lets them know to make sure that they know what they're on trial for. He says, I don't rebuke you because of your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. He's like, you, you're great at going through the motions. I will not take a bull from your household. And now, now he kind of talks about his relationship with them. He says, look, you, you can present your sacrifices to me all day. You can give your burnt offerings. You can go through the motions as much as you want. Every day you have checked that box. You have made an appearance of that you are after my heart, but you're not. He says, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine. He's like, you're not giving me anything back. It's already mine. He said, the cattle on a thousand hills, all of those belong to me. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. And if I were hungry, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and everything in it is mine. And he, he kind of like, it's this interesting thing because when they sacrificed animals and sometimes when they gave burnt offering, it was kind of like a barbecue. And I imagine it would be so hard for a priest. You're like, I just want a, a steak taco right now. You know, come on. And they couldn't like partake in it. I mean, the priest got a portion of it, but they had to sometimes boil it and they had to roast it. And there was this pleasing aroma to God. And God's like, I don't actually eat that stuff. I'm a vegetarian. No, I'm just kidding. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? I don't actually consume any of that stuff. But offering a thanksgiving to God and pay your vows to the Most High. You know, if you call on me in the day of trouble, I will rescue you because I've told you I would do that. I've made a covenant with you. I will keep my end of the bargain and you will honor me. But God says to the wicked, and now he introduces this title of wickedness. And again, we think if it's a courtroom, we go immediately and we look at the people who are guilty. The evidence stacks up. We get it. It's for those people. But remember, he started off 
this conversation by saying, you're my people. And then he changes the title, or at least his interaction with them. And the wicked are actually his people. They're actually us. He says, what right? And you can tell this is, this is his people that are doing this. He coincides both wickedness with the people who have said that they have followed him. He says, what right do you have to recite my statues? You know what the law is. You teach it every once in a while. Every once in a while, you talk about it in your homes. You pray to me about them. You teach others. Generationally, you pass them down. You recite my statues and take my covenant on your lips. What right do you have to do that? You hate my instruction and you fling my words behind you. It's a great analogy. He's like, as you're going along about life, you have the wisdom and my law and you just decide to toss it behind you, moving forward without me accompanying you or leading you. And it's a reminder. He's he's basically saying, remember, you entered this covenant. I didn't force you to. You decided to take my covenant on your lips. You decided to be faithful to me. You decided to reenact my covenant by offering sacrifices. You decided to teach these things. You decided to read my laws. And then you tossed them. And you tossed them. And he gives them kind of three different ways of thinking about this from the Ten Commandments. He says, you know, when you see a thief, and he's, again, he's talking to his people. When you see a thief, you make friends with him. And you associate with adulterers, and you unleash your mouth for evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. You sit maligning your brother and slandering your mother's son. You look at this and you go, this is thousands of years ago, and I've done at least one of these things. And three of these, you shouldn't, shouldn't steal, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't give false testimony. Three of these, God's giving testimonial evidence. He's saying, these are the things that you do. These are the things that the people of God do. And this isn't just to Israel back then. We could read this sentence and we could probably pick out one of them and go, I've done at least one of these things. I've gossiped. I've lied. I've talked about other people in the church. They're sitting right over there, actually, you know. I've done one of these things. I've stolen something. And God's indicting them. And here's like maybe the coldest line in this whole psalm. It hit me hard. When, when I read it. It says, you have done these things and I kept silent and you thought I was just like you. Here's, what, here's how I took this. Because God, you know, when I sin, he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't show up and be like, hey, I saw what you did. Knock it off. Like, I'm like, okay, I didn't die. No bolts of lightning came. And maybe I'll do that sin again. I'm like, again, Nothing happens. Maybe God doesn't mind this sin so much. You do it enough times and you start to make God almost like yourself. You know, Voltaire said this. He said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And it's a dangerous thing is that when we regard God in his silence, we think or we can talk ourselves into, maybe this sin's not so bad. Maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Maybe it's not even a sin. And you're on the slippery path away from righteousness and towards sinful, accepted behavior. And even worse is that we think God is just fine with it. But I think we shouldn't mistake God's 
grace and mercy with his justice. You know, when you are on the receiving end of someone's sin, maybe their words are harmful to you, maybe they have physically, mentally, sexually, socially, or relationally assaulted you, and you go, where is God in this? Where is his justice? You want justice when you're on one side, but when you're the perpetrator, you don't say anything wrong with that. And there's kind of two ways, at least two ways of thinking about this, because you probably experienced in your life some time where you thought that God was silent when he really shouldn't be. And there are two ways to take this. This is just my opinion. The first one is that justice has not come swift enough, fast enough. God, get here now. Be the person to give justice. Make sure this ends. Harm that person. Get retribution. Have revenge. Like, make me feel okay. And then there's the other portion is that you are the perpetrator. And you hope that God extends his mercy and grace to you because you want more time. And I think it's two ways to think about it. That in one sense, God will at some point bring ultimate justice and there will be more, no more tears and no more pain and no more harm and no more sin and no more war and no more killing and no more any of that. And in the same time, he gives us space to repent. Because at some point in your life, you are the guilty one. No one is born a Christian. I hate to break it to you. All of us have to make a choice. And in that choice, we have to admit that we were an enemy of God and that we harmed people and that we were selfish and sinful and terrible and the deepest depths of our hearts are black without God. And it takes an incredible amount of humility and realization to do that. See, at that point, we don't want justice. We want more time. I'll turn my heart back to you. So two ways to think about that. But God says, you know, I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. are like, ah, oh, dang it, he's got evidence. He's bringing the projector. He's like, let me flip this on and show you some times in your life. And you're like, I don't want to watch. No. He says, understand this, you who forget God. And the implication is you know God, or at least you claim you do. And now you are forgetting me. You who forget God, or I will tear you apart. You still want to meet this God? Still want to follow this one? I will tear you apart and there will be no one to rescue you. He's basically like, there comes an end date to this. You cannot continue to sin and harm and bludgeon people and do evil in this world without a consequence because one day I will bring it. You know, as I was doing research for this, I was reading this great commentary, and I ran across, across this quote. I wish I said it, but I didn't. It was too good. So I figured I'd give this guy credit because it's amazing what he said, and I think it's so true. He says, you know, promises, prayers and promises are made in adversity and forgotten in prosperity. It's so easy to come to God's like, if you just take me out of this place, I'll be your faithful servant. I will follow you. I'll turn my life around. Just get me out of this place that I am in. And then when you're good, where are those promises? Where are the prayers? Where are the coming back to God? And this is essentially what God is accusing them of. You know, this guy, Derek Kidner, who, who, who is the person who wrote this commentary that I was reading, he makes this observation that Israel wanted God to bring them out of where they were. And, and before they were even a nation, they desperately, God, get us out of this desert. God, save us from these people. God, give us food and water. We'll follow you. We'll do anything. And then they become a nation. 
and then they need God a little less, and then they're on their own, and they push God slowly out of their city, and all the promises and prayers that they were sending to him seem to have fallen silent because they were good in life. You know, the people I probably have the most respect for is the people with the past. They know where they've come from, and they never want to go back there again. And I love this quote by him because even when we are in prosperity, even when we are good, we must never forget God who took us out of our sin and our circumstances. So God continues, he says, whoever offers a Thanksgiving sacrifice honors me, and whoever orders his conduct or her conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. He ends, this is the ending of the psalm. He gives all this indictment, and he finally gets to the end, and he finally says, look, if you with sincere and pure hearts sacrifice to me, and you know, we don't, we don't give animal sacrifices anymore. I know some of you don't like your neighbor's pets, but that's not a thing anymore. We don't offer sacrifice anymore. He's like, will you honor me? And whoever orders his or her conduct, meaning orders their life around my statues, my ways, and for us today around what Jesus has said and done, I will show him or her my salvation. I will save them from everything. So it's a long story, and I know you're all super encouraged, and you're going to go back home and be like, ah, this is why I don't go to church. So I'm going to give you some practical things. I want to ask a couple questions here. The first one is, how does God judge, and what does his judgment bring? So judgment is actually a good thing. We've kind of gone over this a little bit. You know, when you are not the wicked person, you're cheering on judgment. God, get those wicked people. And then he turns to you and he's like, you're in that loop. And you're like, ah, I don't really want the judgment anymore. But God's judgment someday is ultimate and swift. Evil will be no more. God will throw one punch and it will be all over. And he's already wound up in Jesus. He's already signaled the end of evil evil and turmoil and everything else. So what does God's judgment bring and how does he do it? So this is just kind of my way of talking about it. God judges by doing a couple things. The first one is he brings evidence and testimony. You know, in this psalm, God isn't just flippant in his charges. He's not general in the way that he talks about people. He didn't just say, hey, you sinned a long time ago. He brings particular, specific ways of engaging with people that they couldn't say, ah, we didn't do that. He goes to them and he takes things that he has seen and heard and watched. And he says, you've done these things. You know, if God were to do that to you, you probably know what he would bring against you. You don't have to tell anybody unless you feel like confession would be therapeutic for you. But what would God say to you? What specific evidence and testimony would he bring into your life if he were to sit down with you of all his fiery, scary glory? And if he were to say to you, I know you did or are continuing to do this? What testimony and evidence would he bring against you? And then God comes to a verdict based on the evidence and testimony. He comes to a verdict. He says, you are guilty. And it's part of the, it's part of the thing that drives people away from Christianity, to be honest, because everyone wants to be known as a good person. And Jesus punched that in the face. He says, no one's good, but God alone. And then the apostle Paul in Romans would say, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And you're like, you sure it's everybody? Am I in this minority? And he's like, nope, it's everybody. All of us need salvation to the Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. 
And he's, he's given a verdict. And the good thing is, we're all guilty together. Congratulations, y'all suck, you know? <laughs> we all do. It's all of us. We're all in it together. There's, you don't get to look at someone and be like, she's so amazing or he's so amazing. I wish I was more like them. All of us need an innocent verdict because we're guilty. And then thirdly, God hands out a sentence. He hands out a sentence. So he brings a witness testimony. He brings evidence. He comes to a verdict. And then he hands out a sentence. You know, when I was growing up in, um, in Orange County, hold the booze, please. I was there, and I wasn't a Christian yet, and, and I went to church, and I really didn't like it. But every once in a while, I'd hear someone use this courtroom analogy, and when they got to this courtroom analogy, at this point, when the handing out of a sentence would come, they would use this analogy. It's very popular for a long time, and I found it resonated with me that as the judge is about to hand out a sentence, a witness comes running into the courtroom and says, hey, I got one more thing to say. Hey, bear with me. I was with them the whole time. And it was a little corny at the time, and maybe it's still corny, but the witness coming in was Jesus himself. He would come in, and he's like, hey, everything you brought, Judge, so far, totally agree with it. I was there when they did some of this stuff. This evidence and testimony, I saw it too, Father, I saw it. And the verdict, I, I'm right there with you. In fact, I'm part of the Trinity, so I can't really disagree with you anyways. So I, I'm with you. And the sentence you're handing down is fair. It's absolutely what they deserve. But Father, you and I had this conversation and we're not going to give them what they deserve. We're going to give them what they don't deserve, which is life and freedom and salvation. And the judge would go, you're right. It's not fair what they're going to get, but it's absolutely what I want to give. And the judge says, you're free. And everyone exudes a sigh of relief. So a couple more things real quick. So God's judgment, what does it bring? We talked about how he did it. What does it bring? At least three things. There's probably more. God's judgment brings this. It brings truth into the darkness because most sin happens at night or without other people's watching. Is that God says, I still see you. You cannot hide it. And it brings the painful truth of realization into the darkness. God's judgment also brings, hopefully, sinners to repentance. And that's 100% of the population that all of us need to repent. His judgment enacts, hopefully, repentance is that as we are sorry, godly sorrow produces godly repentance. And then, for that other group of people, because there are out there, it ultimately will bring the wicked to justice. Someday the evil people who will say no to God, who will say no to eyewitness testimony from Jesus Christ, who will not let him represent them, they have made their decision. God will say, I will honor that decision and they will get justice. This is why we want God to be the judge. Now here's some next steps for you. It's a long story. I know you're, again, feeling really encouraged, but I wanted to give you some really impactful, hopefully easy to hard next steps. The first one is just to read the next Psalm. You know, Psalm 51 is a great way to start the process of repentance, start the process of admission of guilt, start the process of coming to God and saying, how do I do this? You just flip to the next page, uh, Psalm 51, and it's this admission of guilt by the psalmist to go, God, I did these things. I am so sorry. This is the easiest one for you to do. All you got to do is read. Second one, a little, little harder, is to recommit your life to God. I mean, lots of people need to do this. 
at some points in their life. They have done what the religious people in Israel do, is they slide away from God until they're unrecognizable as a Christian. And when people ask them if they are a Christian, they do. And just like the people in Israel who, by their motions, they sacrificed, they recited the statues, they knew the right things, they look on the outside like a Christian. But Jesus was so harsh to these people. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're walking dead people. You're venomous vipers. You prey on people. You do not have the things of God, but the things of men in your hearts. And so maybe it's time to just recommit to go, God, you know, I've, I've been away from you for so long. I don't want to recommit my life back to you. And the third one is the hardest. Because you got to ask yourself if you really want this. You ask God to search your heart and judge you. And you got to be careful of this one. Because he'll do it. And he will convict you, at least I believe, through the Holy Spirit in a way that you can't comprehend. That he will search deep in your heart and he goes, do you really want to know? And he will reveal this to you. I don't, I'm not saying I know how it happens. Maybe in prayer, maybe a voice, maybe a vision, maybe a dream. I don't know. Maybe a person. But ask him to search your heart and find any offensive ways towards him in you. And then when he reveals that, you have to make a decision. Do I continue or do I repent? One last thing for you, just in case you don't have enough uh, next steps here. Is I wanted to end with this prayer. It's kind of a two-parter here. This week's prayer is this. God, help me to hear you this week. Because remember, God starts by saying, listen, may my lips be closed. So the challenge in this prayer this week is maybe to just recite this and say nothing else. My mind be calm. My ears be open to listen to you. Search my heart and find if there are any offensive ways in me. I ask you to judge my motives, my thoughts, my heart, my actions. Help me be grateful to you for your mercy. Help me be blameless in your eyes through Jesus Christ, my Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we oddly should welcome your judgment. It doesn't feel good to be judged. In fact, it's one of the main things that Christians are accused of is to be not only hypocritical, but judgmental. And Lord, we ask that before we even try to look at someone else, we take Jesus' words seriously, that before we look at the speck in someone else's eye, we dislodge the plank in our own. We ask, God, that you begin with your people. We cannot represent you well to the world if we do not stop and repent of the things that we need to repent of. Help us look more like you to the rest of the world. Judge us. And like a surgeon, cut out anything in our heart that is offensive to you. Turn our hearts back to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sorry I'm leaving you this way. No, sorry, not sorry a little bit. I hope you come back next week. I hope so. Next week, we're going to talk about when I am old and gray, which is great because I'm starting to gray. But it'll be talking about maturity and faith. We hope you'll come back. You're already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for being here.